several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow Yep, indeed, it is time for your weekly Grape Encounter. And as we speak, it is pouring down rain outside here in California wine country. It is a story that has been going on for months now. And many of you across the country certainly have heard the story about the Oroville Dam that has been a big threat to residents below the dam. That does not impact the wine industry particularly, but certainly underscores just how significant the rain has been here in California. It has been a real change in direction from years of drought. We thought it would be interesting to talk about how that impacts the wine industry because, as I said, it's a complete turnaround from where we have been. I have on the line today somebody who knows an awful lot about California wine. And remember, California wine represents about 90% of the domestically produced wine. It's Gladys Horiuchi, Director of Media Relations for the Wine Institute. The Wine Institute is the Public Policy Advocacy Association of California wineries. They bring together the resources of over a thousand wineries and affiliated businesses to support legislative and regulatory advocacy, international market development, media relations, scientific research, and education programs that benefit the entire California wine industry. And Gladys, welcome to the show. It's been a while since we've had you on. It's great to be here, David. Thanks for having me on. All right. So the question, at least on my mind, and probably anybody that loves wine is, what is the impact of all of this rain? Because there have been a lot of stories coming out of certainly the Napa and Sonoma wine regions, but also the Central Coast as well. A huge impact, I think, that the storms have had on the um, amount of water that we now have in the state of California, but sometimes enough is enough. So where do we stand right now? Well, I understand the drought is over in the North Coast, at least, and throughout most of the state. And of course, our thoughts go out to the folks in Oroville, although I understand that the residents are allowed to go back to their homes. So uh, there are not too many wineries up there, but, you know, obviously we are concerned about our communities throughout the state. The rain is great. I mean, we've had several years of drought, and of course, grapevines are a low-water-use crop, and they can handle drought for about four years, and then we need rain. And thank heavens we've got it, and it's great to have it. And you may have heard about some of the flooding, but the vines are dormant right now, and they can stay underwater for about a month before the feet get too wet and they start to get some root rot. So if there is any flooding going on, what people are mostly concerned about is some of the debris cleanup afterwards and having to fix some trellises and things of that nature. There's no harm to the vines, though. 
but the interesting thing is, is that, it, you know, you said they can handle it for a month, but, you know, it's raining right now. And at least the long range forecasts show that it's going to continue to rain for some time. And I've seen some of the photographs and film out of, you know, certainly the Napa and Sonoma areas, you know, creeks certainly spilling over their banks. I mean, it's really been something. And I've seen a lot of posts on Facebook and other social media where people up there are just saying, okay, enough is enough. You know, it's just amazing. So are we getting to the point where it could do some damage? Is anybody worried right now or? No, not at all. They'd like to even divert some of the water that's coming off of the river and put it into some of their storage ponds because if there's a frost in the spring, they use that excess water to spray the vines to protect it from frost. And this is a good time of year to do it when when people don't care if we're diverting water from the streams because there's so much of it right now. So you're saying that what they do is it's the grape growers themselves that actually divert the water into the, you know their storage ponds that they have there out in the vineyards. Right, right, because they don't want to do it during other times of the year where it might affect, you know, the fish. And so this is a good time of year to do it, and they can store that water. And, of course, when it, there is a frost, they spray the vines, and then it provides a protective ice coating on the vines so that it doesn't, uh, frost doesn't damage the vines. So this is the time of year to do it, and we have actually passed a bill to allow them to do that. So, you know, one thing that always has troubled me about water issues in California is the idea that it just seems like we just don't have enough storage for water in the state. And you see, I think you're right. You see yeah. water literally rushing out to the ocean, which does absolutely no good for the drought situation in the state. Is that something that the Institute gets involved in, or is that outside of your sphere of influence? You know what? I, I'm not up on this, but I, I believe California could use some more infrastructure and, and dams to, s- to store some of the water. I think a lot of people are watching this mammoth amount of water that is being drained off of, you know, from the Oroville Dam, and it just kind of, man, it just puts knots in my stomach when I think about just how badly we could have used that water a few months ago. Well, it's funny you should say that, though. Within the last four years, people were talking about drought, but it's actually, we've had some record grape crushes from each year with some terrific vintages. So it wasn't necessarily a bad thing for the vines. We actually had a good amount of wine grapes come in because we had more acreage planted to low water use crop, though. And actually, the quality was higher, too. Got critically acclaimed reviews. Well, you know, that I know is the case because I have, you know, had the opportunity to taste some of these wines. Last year's vintage is just, I think, going to be one of the best that we've ever had. And a lot of people don't realize that grapes like you and I work better under stress, <laughs> produce a better bit, under stress. A little yeah. bit of moderate stress, and, and of course, uh, they prune the vines so that it wouldn't overproduce it so they could make sure that they could ripen the grapes, but it was a smaller yields, but there was more acreage. So, you know, high quality and, and generally some pretty good yields throughout the state. We just got the crush report. It's 4 million tons. It's not a record, but it's certainly up there. Why does it take that long to get the crush report, by the way? You know, we're in February right now. Oh, uh, and it's not even final, but the final one will come out in a month. Well, you're talking about 5,900 growers, and so it's a lot of gathering of information from various ag commissioners, like 58 counties, and there are grapes grown in 49 of those 58 counties. Isn't that amazing? Wow. We're talking to Gladys Horiuchi. She's the Director of Media Relations for the Wine Institute. It is a public policy advocacy association. Uh, Well, really, uh, the biggest one, certainly in the United States, representing over a 1,000 wineries and affiliated businesses. Talking about the impact of the rain, everybody's been 
seeing it on uh, TV and hearing about it on the radio and reading about it in the newspapers, it's really been reversing the drought conditions that have so severely impacted the state of California. Gladys, let's talk for a minute about why California wine is so important and why we're watching the weather anyway, because I don't know that people really realize just how important the industry is throughout the country. I mean, we're talking about a mammoth industry and what, it's 90% of the domestically produced wine that's consumed here in the U.S.? Well, we're producing that much of the country's wine, but of course, uh, if you count the other states and imports, market share is about 60%. Sorry to throw out so many statistics. That's but- right. The thing about California wine, it's it's not just the value of, of the wine itself and those cells. It's just that we have a huge impact on tourism and affiliated industries and the hospitality industry. So, you know, the car rental companies, the hotels, the restaurants. Uh, California is the number one visited state for wine and food activities in the country. And then if you count all the other jobs that it generates throughout the country, it's about 786,000 jobs. It employs that many people throughout the country. Holy smoke. You know, yeah. yeah, well, and I guess what's interesting about that is the idea that, you know, you don't just grow grapes and make wine. You also have that wine going out to retailers and all of the allied businesses that support the industry. So, yeah, you kind of forget the fact that even though it's made in California, it's sold all over the country. And that has a big impact throughout the U.S. The wholesalers, the distributors, the sommeliers, it's an economic driver. It's not just the wine but because of its impact on other industries. So is it correct to assume then that with all of this rain that we're getting in California that we're likely to have a bumper crop this year? Um, <laughs> Maybe. I don't know that. You know, I, I don't know. I don't do much crystal balling. It's just like depends on how much acreage planted, how much is pulled out. You know, I, I don't think the grape growers like to overcrop their vines that much. They'll probably just do what they feel like they can get the best uh, numbers for the sugars and the acids and all of that. We've always tried to focus on quality, and that's the reason we've been so successful throughout the world is our focus on quality, because we can't compete on price and volume. We have to compete on quality because we're the fourth largest producer in the world, and so that's been the success story is is focusing on quality. That is just amazing. Well, there's a report that just came out a couple of days ago from the Wine Institute talking about the record that uh, has been set in 2016, $1.62 billion in exports. We're going to talk about that next, Gladys. So can you hang on with us? And we'll get into a little more number crunching when we return with Grape Encounters Radio talking to Gladys Horiuchi, the Director of Media Relations for the Wine Institute here in California. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more Grape Encounters. You're having a Grape Encounter with David Wilson. Wine does not simply stimulate intriguing conversations. It is often the subject of those conversations. Here is David Wilson. Fine, 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 fine is wine. 
with Grape Encounters Radio, and pleased to have on a guest I haven't had on for a while. It's Gladys Horiuchi. She's the Director of Media Relations for the Wine Institute in California, representing over a thousand wineries and a bunch of other businesses that support the wine industry. A report came out just a couple of days ago, I think actually on Valentine's Day, from the Wine Institute talking about California's wine exports. And wow, you know, I can't even wrap my arms around how big this number is. Gladys, $1.62 billion? Holy smoke! Revenues to wineries, yeah. We're going out to over 20 markets, and obviously our biggest trading partner is the European Union, followed by Canada, Hong Kong, Japan, and China. Mexico, too. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a second, because there is another story that came out prior to this one having to do with Canada, especially what's going on up in B.C. right now, and a lot of people upset because in the British Columbia stores, California, and I guess imports from all over the world, really, are not being treated as well as Canadian-produced wines. Can you just shed a little light on that for us? Well, Canada, they love our wines, and we just simply want a level playing field where the consumers can have choice amongst all the wines that are produced in the world. And there's certain grocery stores where they're only allowing British Columbia wines to be in those stores. And there is a grandfather clause where they can do it in a couple of stores, but they're opening up new stores and also just allowing British Columbia wines only. So not only us, that it's it's a violation of some of the trade agreements that we've had with them and the European Union and New Zealand have also joined in on making a complaint. And so hopefully we can work these things out because because they're the largest single country market and they're obviously our neighboring country and we want to continue the good relations that we have with them. Are we good to them in terms of importing Canadian wines? Because we certainly see Canadian wines, especially, you know, the wines that are produced on the East Coast, you know, some of the ice wines that come out of Canada, some of the best in the world. Are we as good to them as we want them to be to us? (laughs) Well, you know, the United States has one of the most open and barrier-free markets in the entire world. That's why everybody wants to be here. I mean, obviously their production isn't as large as theirs, but they, they could if they want. It's just maybe southern parts of Canada can produce some wines, and but it's a little cool up there. <laughs> so in looking at how the countries rank in terms of California exports, I was curious because the second largest importer of California wines is listed as Hong Kong, and then you go a little further down the list and you see China. Why is Hong Kong broken out from China? Do you happen to know why that is? Hong Kong is kind of a hub for the Asia-Pacific market. Market, and a lot of the wine that's going to Hong Kong is actually going to China, about 30% of it. So it's just a business center, and they've had a sort of a democratic market there for a while. It's been a business hub, and so you'll see a lot of the wine going through Hong Kong before it reaches its ultimate destination. It's hard to break it out. When it hits a port, that's how it's tracked, and if it goes beyond Hong Kong, it's difficult to track. I got you. So in Hong Kong, the number is 98 million, and then if you go further down, China is 80 $81 million worth of California wines. I would imagine that China is a market that the Wine Institute is working very hard to try to expand. Is there special attention being paid to China? Because they've got such a passion for wine that has just exploded in the last 10 years. Well, obviously there's a growing middle class and it was just a trickle a decade ago and it's just grown exponentially and it's just such a huge market and we've expanded our team over there and we're giving master classes and doing a lot more promotion over there. So it's very exciting. It's interesting how many individuals 
individuals in China are working to become sommeliers. It's really amazing because as big as our passion is here, it seems that they are insatiable. And I know in places like Singapore and China, even Japan, they're doing everything they can to increase the level of education there. I imagine that is only good news for California wine. It is. And, you know, California has such a positive image. I mean, people like California. They like our food. They like our wine. They like the lifestyle here. And and they like our movies and the whole package. And so we we do a lot of promotion around what California is. And people want to try the wines because they like California. So got that working in our favor. Do you expect to see California's wine production expand? There are certainly some areas in California that are very capable of producing really exceptional wines that still, I think, have growth potential. And of course, one of the things we were talking in the prior segment about the rain and the drought in California, that I guess may be one thing that holds back production, does it not? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like you've got to have the water. And so I I would imagine that is a large part of the reason. But it has been growing incrementally. And it's an investment. You know, to get into the wine industry, it takes four years before you can get a crop. And then you... (laughs) And you have to find a buyer, but a lot of small boutique wineries have popped up all along the coast and throughout California. So there's a lot of small production, and that's mostly what the industry is, is small production wines when you look at the number of wineries, and half of them are producing 5,000 cases or less. So a lot of small industry and wineries to discover. So tying our first subject together with the second, the rain topic, with the production topic, there is a lot written about how in other countries countries, you know, not only do they not irrigate, but in some places they're not even allowed to irrigate. That is a big movement here in the United States. How's that coming? Because obviously if that's something that holds back our ability to increase production, then I guess that has to be a number one priority. The water is only one piece of it. Some of us just playing economics and having building a market for a brand. There's a lot of competition. There's only so many labels that can fit on a grocery store shelf. Right. But we do have a lot of tourism, about 24 million wine-related visits every year. So they go into a tasty room and they want to ship wine back home. So there's more of that going on where people are shipping directly to consumers. In in terms of shipping to consumers, there are certainly some states out there that have regulations that make it very hard to get California wines into those states. Is that easing? Oh, yeah. That's what we've been working on the last 20 years of setting up laws so that wineries can ship a small amount of wine directly to consumers without going through the three-tiered system of producer to wholesaler to retailer to consumer. So now, I think you can reach 90% of the consumers in the country with these direct shipping laws. There's a few states like Utah and Oklahoma and Kentucky where you can't do that, but most of the country is pretty much open to these direct shipping laws. you got to know the laws, so we'll leave it at this, Gladys. There is lots of information, a plethora of information on your website in terms of how you go about doing Doing that. For people who want more information on the California wine industry and, and are thirsty for knowledge, where do we send them? Well, the Wine Institute is basically the website for the industry, but for consumers, I would go to our other website, discovercaliforniawines.com, and we've got a directory of all the wineries, and you can search by what wines they make or if they have a garden or a picnic area or tours.
stores. Our media trade section has got all our releases where we have a feature on each of the wine regions of California and what you can do. There's a section on sustainable wine growing, which is a very big trend, uh, this whole green movement, and California is leading the way on that. And there's a little informational picture section where you can learn about it, and you can even become a ambassador of sustainable wine growing by taking a little one-hour quiz and getting a certificate off this website. So lots of fun stuff there. And All right, lots of great information there. Gladys Horiuchi, Director of Media Relations for the Wine Institute. Hey, I'm so glad to have you on. It's been a while, like I said, and you guys just do such amazing things over there, and we so appreciate it. We'll be back in touch with you, I'm sure, later in the year to talk about how things are progressing in California. Great. The Golden State is now the Green State. <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, uh, red, white, and green wine. There we go. Hey, <laughs> all right, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. She's earthy, honest, and sipping each week as a service to you. From Sunset Magazine, it's Sarah Schneider, and this is Sipping with Sarah on Grape Encounters Radio. Broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of California. All right, we are back with Grape Encounters Radio, and sitting here in the studio with me today is Sarah Schneider. How long have we been doing this anyway? Seems like it's about four years now. Goodness. Isn't that fantastic? That is fantastic. We're growing old together. <laughs> and what better way to grow old together than to drink a lot of wine in the process? It means we're being preserved together. From the inside out, right, which is always exactly. a good way to do it, yeah. So I wanted to talk today about wine education, because there was a time when nobody had a clue what the word sommelier even meant. Or could say it. And I say sommelier. I don't know. What What do you say? I, I say sommelier. I think you're closer to the original French. <laughs> I always just say som, and then I'm feeling ill, and then yay, hooray, hooray. And it works. <laughs> sommelier, nobody will fault you for it. There you go. There's the trick. Anyway, what I was fascinated with, I read an article a year or so ago talking about the fact that there were 19 people who passed the recent Master of Wine final exam. That's an amazingly big number. It's a big number, but when you think about it, it's also a small number when you consider tens of millions of people are really hardcore wine enthusiasts and how few really have a solid education in wine. That's true. In fact, does this number push it over 200 in the whole world? I don't know. Masters of Wine. No, there are a few more Masters of Wine than Master Psalms. Yes. Um, so it's probably somewhere in the 200s, but that's worldwide. What's interesting is that the people who seem to really be going after this kind of certification, they're young. And we're talking about a profession that for ages, I mean, certainly as long as you and I've been alive, has been considered to be one of the most pretentious, stuffy professions that you can be in. And now sommeliers and wine experts, and by the way, sommelier means wine expert, just so you know, they are becoming as big a rock stars as these really amazing chefs that have been coming onto the scene now for the past couple of decades. That's true. And because 
the interest is getting younger, I think it's very much helping to move that needle from that pretentious older man's arena to the young interest. I mean, millennials are very interested in wine detail yes. now. And they love doing it. And I find it very interesting that at our shop, the Grape Encounters Emporium, we have frequently now had people coming in who are studying for their sommelier exams, and they want us to pour wines based on a certain set of criteria <laughs> in the blind and then test them. Interesting. Because they want to be on completely neutral turf, and they don't want any chance of getting any hints or clues about these wines. Mm -hmm. They'll say, pour us six wines in the blind, and they need to be in these categories, and it could be 20 categories or whatever. But they love doing that. We love doing that. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this whole idea of drinking wine in the blind is a very good idea because, you know, first decide whether you like it and then figure out what it is. Figure out what it is. And for both of those professional tracks, the Master of Wine and the Master Sommelier, they have to do a ton of tasting blind just to develop to the level of the deductive reasoning that will get them through that final tasting test. So it's not just academic knowledge. It's that sensory astuteness. And from what I hear from friends who have worked toward either of those, they just can't get enough tasting. I made this observation just last week, and it's not an observation I had really made before. It goes like this. I have people who are sommelier candidates that come in and they know they can count on me to just pour them a wine and not tell them what it is. What's fascinating is that I would say 75 at least percent of the time, they will blurt out an answer. They'll say, I think it's this, this or whatever. And I'll just listen to them and then they'll kind of narrow it down to two or three possibilities. But then they don't go with their first possibility. <laughs> they overthink it. They overthink it and they get it wrong. And right out of the chute, they taste it. They go, oh, that's a whatever it is. Well, no, wait a second. Wait a second. Let me think here. No, it couldn't be that. It's got to be this. And then they'll go through like this laundry list of things, <laughs> all of which are wrong. They had it right the first time. And that's happened so many times. I can't even tell you. They is, don't trust themselves. That is a lesson I learned. So I am not on either of those tracks, but I have passed the introductory level for the Master Psalm program. I mean, I would like to pat myself on the back for that, but anybody could do it. You take a weekend of classes and they tell you what they're going to test you on, and then they test you. It doesn't have a tasting component. But during the classwork over the weekend, we did a series of blind tastings, and we each had to talk about some part of the wine as we were learning this deductive tasting. Yeah. Um, and the master psalms, who were our instructors, the thing they said the most to the novice that we were coming to this, as they were going through their thought process, the instructors kept saying, don't overthink it, don't overthink it don't overthink it. It was really interesting. That's an important point to remember if you're taking the exam because they really aren't trying to fool you. Right. That's a very important thing to remember. If you're taking that exam, nobody's trying to foul you up. If anything, they're probably going to pour for you wines that are very true to that varietal character. Classic versions. Yes, exactly. Of, of those grapes worldwide. Yeah, yeah. but you got to follow your instincts. Oh, by the way, did you notice in front of you, Sarah, what in the world a glass of wine Goodness, showed up. you've poured me a glass of red wine. Let's see how much you can overthink this. <laughs> I'm guilty of a lot okay, of overthinking. Ahead. This okay. isn't a test, but this is a little aside. We're taking a breather here while Sarah sniffs. <laughs> 
swirls. I love the fact that you actually can swirl your glass without swirling the microphone. <laughs> it might be all down my top here, but okay. I, the microphone <laughs> well, is clean. All right. It's radio, not TV. Oh, that is a very delicious wine, by the way. It is a lush red wine. It has a plush mouthfeel with a spiciness under that red fruit. Are we in Zinfandel territory? I think you're in Zinfandel land. Actually, <laughs> not this territory. Yeah. Okay. It's ripe. Well, Zinfandel itself suggests California. And that would be correct as well. So Napa Sonoma area, Lodi, Mendocino. Temecula, Central Coast. As you name those regions, I'm thinking in terms of ripeness and alcohol levels. Yes. But I'm guessing that you might be surprising me here. Um, Sarah, don't overthink it. <laughs> I'm going to go with Lodi. You'd be wrong. You overthought it. I overthought it. Yep. Next choice? My next choice, Sierra Foothills. Wrong. Wait, you've got me. Three strikes rule? Three strikes rule. Last chance. Another sip. Any excuse to get another sip? That's the funny part. Mendocino. You're going to wine jail for a very long time, Sarah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's Central Coast. Central Coast Zinfandel. It's Central Coast. And it is actually Central Coast and the winemaker. You should be familiar with this winemaker a little bit because last year I brought you a bottle of his prior vintage. It's St. Hilaire. Now, I don't love his label too much, but I do love his wines. And I remember loving this last time. You had the My 2012. This is the 2013, 13. which I frankly think turned out better than the 2012. This is not a shy wine. So this I, is not so, a shy so wine. So here, here's my defense of my reasoning. Um, of your Riesling? My, my Riesling. Okay. I can always defend my Rieslings. I have my Rieslings. It struck me as having a fairly high alcohol level, according to the label it does. And so I was thinking of warmer places, although Paso Robles is a fairly warm place. So I was overthinking it. This wine is actually pushing, alcohol-wise, 16%. I think, what has he got it listed here? Listed at 158 15.8, yeah, pushing yeah. 16%. And the government allows you a little wiggle room where right. alcohol is concerned. So that could be over 16. It could be over 16. So it's pretty potent, although I think it disguises the alcohol pretty well. Quite well balanced. But I think yeah. a really excellent expression of what a Zinfandel should taste like. This is not a wine to fool you. And it's not. Some big jammy mouthful of Welch's grape jelly. I think it's really got some elegance to it, I think, It, it is an elegant wine. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so going back to the idea of becoming a psalm and taking those exams, I would say this. Unless you intend to work in the industry, your time might be better spent reading everything you can possibly read and subscribing to a few of the really good magazines. There's a lot of information out there. If you want to become somebody who's making a living in the wine industry, you probably will have to become a psalm if you're going to be talking up wines. But no point in doing that if it's just for your own personal satisfaction, because you could spend the same amount of time learning stuff that's really going to be valuable to you as a layperson. Right. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And I think that it's good to know that besides those two sort of top examples of wine programs for professionals, there is just a whole maze of different wine education courses and programs. But for the layperson in most urban centers, you can take a series of classes. There's a lot of rich material out there. I think more than anything, it helps you find other wines that you're going to love as much as the wines that you're used right, to loving. Right. So the end of the story is, if you don't need it, don't do it. But if you just want to do it for fun and you got a lot of time on your hands, that's great too. Why not? Ah, heck, you know what? We got our own shtick and we teach that to our listeners and readers. <laughs> what more could you want? We're good. All right. You know what you could want? More Grape Encounters. And we've got more coming your way right after these important messages. 
Grape Encounters will continue shortly. If you're near a computer or have your smartphone in hand, join our Facebook group page by searching for Grape Encounters Radio. David will return after these enlightening messages. We like to talk about wine. Grape Encounters presents what we heard through the grapevine. Today's top news, trends, and stories. Every day there's a whole lot of news being made in the world of wine. And it's not simply about tasting notes and terroir. In the interest of keeping you informed and giving you plenty to talk about around an otherwise dull dinner table, it's time to give you gallons to gossip about as we sip into the Grape Encounters newsroom. Oh dear, one of the UK's most recognizable sparkling wine brands has managed to shimmy its way onto a pretty big blacklist. Nye Timber, which was one of the first major English fizzes to break into the market, has been banned at the Savoy Hotel. The Savoy has been the luxury hotel in London since it first opened its doors in the late 1800s. So what went down? Well, apparently a tycoon temper tantrum of epic proportions. The Dutch proprietor of Nye Timber, Eric Harima, allegedly flew into a rage, smashing glasses and insulting bar staff at a recent event, according to the Times. A quick Dear John letter to Nye Timber from Savoy's food and beverage director put a cork in their much-heralded relationship. A public relations nightmare? Well, maybe not quite, but it's not exactly the best way to build your brand. I mean, trashing hotels is simply unacceptable, unless, of course, you're a rock star who's expected to behave badly. Anyway, what a way to get barred from a bar. A far cry from last year, when a 2009 Nye Timber beat out several major champagnes in a blind tasting. At least Harima can claim he had a smashing time. From not-so-jolly old England to ruining reputations in Rioja, where some would really love to banish the Spanish. Wannabe wines, that is. Some of the most storied Rioja producers are calling for stricter regulations for the Reserva and Gran Reserva categories. Why? Well, they're claiming that the categories are being contaminated by poorer quality wines, smearing the good name of Rioja with swill that doth not thrill. What appears to be happening is growing numbers of less than scrupulous Rioja producers are using the same quality of grapes to make all their wines and aging them to meet the bare minimum requirements for Reserva and Grand Reserva. They release more wines in these categories, and guess what? They aren't as good and can be bought very, very cheaply, something that threatens the stability of the whole shebang. Any winemaker worth his or her salt will use only the best grapes from a harvest for their top wines, something that is in part reflected both in the price but also the quality. Hopefully, the governing board in Rioja will take note of what's going on and draft stricter rules. It would be sad to see such a well-respected region tarnished with a brush of mediocrity. Of course, $8 Grand Reserva can still be used for sangria, so maybe it's not a total disaster. Next up, the big game is in the record books, but weeks later, people are still talking about it. 
And while the game was an undisputed nail-biter, a lot of folks down under wish one of their best-known brands had bitten their tongue instead of airing an ad that was anything but adorable. Yep, people are still talking about the Yellowtail Wine ad that aired during the big game a few weeks ago. Even though ad slots during the game are notoriously hard to clinch, Australia's Yellowtail managed to find a loophole in Anheuser-Busch's death grip on all booze slots. Unfortunately, even the best laid plans can backfire. Yep, in a matter of 30 seconds, the ad managed to mortify the masses, and many took to Twitter to voice their horror and embarrassment. Yellowtail's managing director said of the ad, We wanted it to feel inclusive and for everybody, just like our wines. Which apparently means lame body part jokes, bikini-clad babes, and the exploitation of Aussie stereotypes. Now, while we generally appreciate any attempts at making wine fun and approachable, the U.S.-based agency that put the ad together seems to have missed the mark, putting a dent in the effort of Aussie winemakers to be taken seriously in the U.S. The ad's misguided effort to woo millennials suggests that the creative team may have totally missed the memo that young doesn't mean dumb. And in the kangaroo court of opinion, a lot of millennial wine drinkers are hopping mad. While Yellowtail is causing a stir on social media, a war seems to be brewing here at home on the northern border. A trade war, that is. There's apparently some serious wrath over grapes here on home soil as a potential wine trade war is brewing with our neighbor to the north. A complaint has been filed with the WTO to overturn regulations in British Columbia that purportedly discriminate against American wines. In grocery stores, only locally produced wines can be sold, which the case argues flies in the face of NAFTA. And as the largest importer of U.S. wine, you'd think they'd want to sell it. Nonetheless, local wines aren't subject to the same markups as international ones, and the U.S. isn't the only producing nation complaining. If it escalates, it could lead to restrictions on Canadian imports, so you might want to stock up on that maple syrup. Tensions in the world of import-export are by no means limited to the U.S. and Canada stalemate. In France, foreign competition is doing a mighty good job of bursting Champagne's proverbial bubble. According to recent reports, Champagne's sales are down. Last year's numbers slipped below both the 2014 and 2015 totals. Oddly enough, the biggest drop in Champagne consumption is at home in France. But numbers are down throughout the rest of the EU and UK, with some blaming Brexit for the drop. This comes after Italian Prosecco's rise to the top, knocking Champagne off its pedestal two years in a row. A small silver lining for the region is that outside of Europe, sales went up if only by an infinitesimal amount. Last year in the good old U.S. of A, we became Champagne's second largest export market. Anyway, last week's Valentine's Day clearly demonstrated that other sparkling wines seem to spark romance just as well as Champagne but without the higher price, which is why more and more analysts wonder if France's status as the big cheese in all things sparkling is now coming to a close. With basically every country in the world now making sparkling wine, consumers have more choices than ever before, with plenty of cheaper yet delicious options. Nonetheless, I suspect the most hopeless romantics would be pretty sad 
if champagne fizzled. All right, well, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters News. In fact, that's going to do it for Grape Encounters this week. We will see you back here at this same time next week. <laughs>